This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 562, a conversation with Steve Englehart. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 562. It's our conversation with Steve Englehart, or should I say the second conversation with Steve Englehart. Uh, if you want to go back into the archives, you can catch out uh, catch our first episode where we talk with Steve about his career in comics. Um, and this time was actually kind of fun because there was a, a whole period we kind of missed out on the last time. We talked uh, in the first conversation, we talked about his original period of Marvel going over to DC. Uh, what we didn't really talk about is kind of his big second... Um, second appearance at Marvel, and he came and wrote a lot of books. Uh, he wrote the West Coast Avengers. He wrote Fantastic Four. So this was nice to be able to kind of uh, delve a little bit more into that, talk about Ultraverse characters as well. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to the first episode that I uh, recorded with Steve, we recorded that uh, two months ago. It was episode 544. Um, but I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. I do want to thank everyone from the Marvel Masterworks Forum who contributed questions. Uh, DJ Way, as always, you are uh, an amazing resource in uh, supporting me with great questions for my guests. So thank Thank you, uh, as well as the others who uh, submitted questions as well. Uh, but, but enough of my blathering. You can always email me at comic shenanigans, yeah. comic shenanigans at gmail.com. Why did I call it this? It's so hard to say. Comic shenanigans at gmail.com. You can like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, thanks again for joining me for this episode. Let's get right into the conversation with Steve Englehart. Steve, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for uh, for coming back for round two. And I realized as I was I was listening back to our, our first conversation, uh, we talked about a lot. We went for like an hour and a half, but somehow we kind of missed out on your kind of your '80s return to Marvel, um, which was there's a lot of great stuff you worked on when you came back to Marvel in the '80s. But somehow we we didn't talk about it. So I kind of want to jump into that and kind of see how how did you end up back at Marvel in the '80s? Well, when I left comics in the 70s after doing Batman and Justice League and so forth for DC um, I that was the end of my comics career as far as I was concerned I you know I went off to do other things I traveled I wrote a novel I ended up working for Atari doing game design back in the I, I live near the Silicon Valley reasonably near the Silicon Valley and um you know, I got recruited to come down and do game design for those guys, and and so I was I was cruising along. Um, I was doing um, started doing Coyote as a um, as an independent book, uh, and then somewhere in there, I'm not exactly sure before or after, but somewhere in there it, it became an Ar- a Marvel epic book, but. That was on the side. I mean, I was doing that stuff because it was allowing me to do things I hadn't been able to do in, in commercial comics and so forth. And so in 1984, I went down to the San Diego Comic Convention, as I did every year in those days. Um, and both Jim Shooter from Marvel and Dick Giordano from DC came up and said, hey, you think you might ever want to do comics again? And I said, no. No, I'm good. I'm, I'm I'm enjoying what I'm doing here now. And I went home, and then that's, you know, I went home on a Sunday, and that Sunday night my boss at Atari called me up, and he says, I think we're all going to get fired on Wednesday. <laughs> um, um, a new guy had just bought Atari and uh, was going to bring in his own team. And so that Monday morning I called up Jim Shooter and Dick Giordano, and I said, well, actually, you know, maybe I would. I would come back and do some stuff. Um, and so 
because both of them had asked me and because I called both of them then and just because uh, I went back to work for both companies, you know. Um, uh, the comp- neither company probably totally appreciated that, but <laughs> they, you know, they couldn't, you know, they'd asked me, so they couldn't very well tell me I couldn't do this, that, or the other thing. So um, I still ended up doing most of my stuff at Marvel, but I did uh, Green Lantern Corps for DC. Now it's interesting. Like, how did how did Green Lantern get pitched to you to take over that book? And because you definitely oversaw some changes and brought in some new characters, so how did that kind of get positioned? Was it just this is what's available, or did you already have an interest in writing Green Lantern? Um, it was what was available. I did have an interest in it. I, I really liked Green Lantern. You know, all the previous years, um, um, particularly in the early John Broom, Gil Kane era. Um, just the vast scope of the whole thing. But, again, in those days, you didn't ask for things. Um, you were just given them, and, and that was the understood concept. So um, Giordano said, um, you know, he really wanted me to take over Green Lantern because nothing, it never it never varied in sales. I mean, they, it didn't matter. I, the people just before me were Len Wein and, and um, Dave Gibbons. Um, but he said, you know, Green Lantern, it just, it, 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 they can't, nothing's happening. Um, and he said, you know, I remember you took over Captain America um, and nothing was happening and you figured out something to do with it, so maybe you can do that with Green Lantern. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was just handed to me, but I really, you know, I liked it, um, liked the history of it. And when I picked it up, um, John Stewart was the Green Lantern Hal Jordan had quit, said he wasn't going to come back, um, and I think everybody kind of understood that he would come back because he was the original Green Lantern. But I thought, why does that mean that John Stewart has to go anywhere? Why can't there be two of them, you know? Um, and that led me to think later on, why can't there be three of them? Um, and that led me later on to think, why can't there be a Green Lantern Corps? Um the third one, of course, was Guy Gardner, um, who had been a completely useless <laughs> character to this point. He'd been introduced in one story where he was a nice guy who who was the ultimate fill-in for Green Lantern on Earth. And then there were a couple more stories, like a couple years later, in which he'd been injured and, and had brain damage and was just kind of staring vacantly into space, blah, blah, blah. And then he'd been forgotten again for a number of years. So he was the most obscure Green Lantern on Earth. But um, I thought, well, uh, you know, maybe I could do something with him. So I turned him into the Guy Gardner that we know now. Um, and so then I had, you know, the the sort of straight arrow Hal Jordan Green Lantern. I had the reasonably straight arrow, but a little more uh, loose around the edges, John Stewart. And then I had the crazy Guy Gardner. <laughs> and and you know, when it came time, you know, uh, very soon after. I mean, it was all kind of. Everything was falling into place. I mean, right very soon, while I started after I started doing this, came Crisis on Infinite Earths, and all of us were supposed to like do our little bits for Crisis on Infinite Earths. But I was just getting back to DC, and I thought, well, I'll just write, you know, the Green Lantern Corps taking place on in space. Um, I can. It wasn't Green Lantern Corps at that point, but Green Lantern taking place in space. 
I can do a, a kind of epic story for my own self, and I can tie it into the to the uh, crisis, and and so all of that happened, and and you know, the crisis came to an end, my thing came to an end, all kind of at the same time, and that was the time to kind of reimagine what was going to happen, and that's where I came up with the Green Lantern Corps as the as the whole book. So then, of course, I needed more characters, and I went back and got the characters that I really liked from the past, um, Aresia and Salak and Chip. Um, but I looked at the group and I said, they got to have some big guy. I mean, there's nobody there who, who visually looks all that, you know, amazing. So we need one, and so I created Kilowog. Um, very definitely made Kilowog a smart guy. He looked like a big Hulk, <laughs> but he was an engineer. He was, a, you know, he was interested in communism later on in the series. I mean, he had a brain, and just because he looked like that didn't mean he was stupid. I've been, you know, not thrilled with DC's later turning him into a drill sergeant and just kind of like, oh, he's big, so he must be stupid, <laughs> you know. Um, but that was not the original concept there. So, um, anyway, so I had all these guys, and then I just. Uh, uh, played with them. I, I remember one quick story there was somebody said to me, well, how can you write a team book where everybody's got the same power? And I said, well, it's not about the power. <laughs> it's about the team, you know. Um, I'm, I'm interested in characters, and, and so that I had no trouble distinguishing between all these people. Um, so that was, I was doing all that on, I was my one book at DC, and I will say, you know, I assume we're about to start talking about the Marvel books, too, and I really like the Marvel books and had a good time, blah, 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 but I would say out of the 80s, Green Lantern was probably my favorite, uh, you know, my favorite title, just because there was so much cool stuff that was baked into that whole universe. Mm-hmm. Was there, I mean, I guess it's also, you know, you have a lot more freedom because everything is taking place in space. It's not really part of the kind of, you know, regular goings-on as much um, as as other kind of entrenched continuity books would be. And obviously with Marvel, your characters are in you know a much bigger sandbox and they're all taking place on Earth for the most part, so it's very different. Right, and I've, I suppose I should actually tie up that story before about sales never changing. Um I don't know exactly how fast it was. Certainly within the first year, we had doubled the sales on Green Lantern. Me and Joe Staten, who was my artist on this, um, you know, the new this approach to Green Lantern got people excited and so forth. And and Dick uh, Dick was happy to <laughs> to make note of that in one of his um, columns that he wrote, you know, for the books in those days. And and so you know, we were. That whole thing went very well, right up until they killed it. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's typical comics, I guess. And, and like, what? So, what happened when, like, when you're running the book ends? Like, how, what? What was the any kind of reason for it at the time that was given? Or yeah, well, they wanted to do action comics weekly. They had this idea of doing a weekly book, and so they came and they said, "We're canceling Greenland." I mean. Green Lantern is is so popular that we want it to be the lead strip in the weekly book. So we're going to cancel the monthly book, and we'd like you and Joe to do the weekly book. And you can write stories that have like eight pages in them. And we, you know, the, the Green Lantern core had just gotten bigger and bigger and more universal as it went. And I just looked at it and I said, well, there's no way. 
<laughs> you know, that I can write, um, uh, you know, the kind of stuff I'm writing with all these characters and the scope and all that kind of stuff in like eight pages at a crack. Um, I later, they were, I later, with a couple different artists, that's maybe a story or not, but I mean, I, I did a Blue Beetle run that never never got printed, um, but I had the occasion to try to write stories in that short thing, and for the Blue Beetle, you could kind of do it, but um, uh, Green Lantern, I couldn't see it, so I said, no, you know, uh, you're canceling the monthly book, I don't want to do the weekly book, and so, you know, they went on. From there, uh, we were a victim of our own success in that regard, and of course, the weekly book didn't really work out. But you know, uh, you know, it was an experiment, I guess. For sure. So, parallel to working on Green Lantern, so you're you're back in the Marvel fold as well, working for Shooter. What was that relationship like with you and Shooter? <sighs> what I always say is, all the people who say that they had trouble with Shooter, I totally believe that, that, you know, I believe them. I have no reason or problem involved in that. Um, But he and I got along fine. Um, He, um, he had, you know, Shooter liked rules. He liked to, like, come up with these overarching concepts. Um, And, uh, you know, I remember one early on was you can't call anybody a supervillain because in the real world, nobody's called a supervillain. And I, you know, I was in New York somehow. I, you know, I used to come and go reasonably often back then. And, and I, you know, I sat down with him and I said, you know, Jim, in the real world, if Doctor Doom existed, people would distinguish between a guy who was trying to take over the universe and a guy who knocked off a liquor store. So they'd come up with the word like supervillain. You know, they'd have some way of, of talking about these people. And that made sense to him, you know? And so he's like, oh, okay, well, then fine. You know, I mean, he you could talk sense to Shooter. Um, he was rigid in ways, in certain ways. But, I mean, you know, um, I just always, you know, came at him like, well, let's just work out whatever there might be that has to be worked out. Um, and so he never gave me a hard time. I will say that after um, they bounced him later on and replaced him with DeFalco, um, various people at Marvel said, you know, he was getting, you know, he was just getting ready to do something to you. I don't know what he would have done, you know, I don't, I think he, I, I do, can, I can see it that he could only go so long without having to assert something, uh, you know, whatever. Um, so it could be that if uh, if there'd been another three months, I would tell you, you know, I had a terrible time with him. But in point of fact, I, you know, we got along fine. Okay. So you, you when so he calls you, you say, and now you're you're calling him back, saying, okay, I'm, I, you know, give me some work, let's go. So it's interesting that you know the books that you work on when you come back immediately are you know the Vision and Scarlet Witch, which is again a new series, as well as the new ongoing series West Coast Avengers. So how did you end up getting you know these brand new books upon your return? Well. Um that was Mark Grunewald, the editor, basically. Again, things were handed to you. And, and so he said, you know, I want you to write the West Coast Avengers. And I don't remember now whether he had an idea to do Vision and Witch as their own strip or whether that was my idea. It was certainly my idea to, like, start both books off with a, you know, a storyline that bounced back and forth between the two. Um, and 
so, you know, I was handed West Coast Avengers. Later on, I heard that Roger Stern was unhappy about this because he had created the West Coast Avengers, which I can certainly understand. But I think, uh, you know, I don't know if it was Shooter, I don't know if it was Grunewald, but somebody in there said, you know, Englehart's famous for writing the Avengers, let's kick off the West Coast Avengers with Englehart writing it, since he's suddenly available to us. Um, you know, I, I didn't ask for it, I didn't, you know, have anything to do with, with whatever, you know, however Roger got treated there, um, and didn't know about it at the time either. I mean, they just, you know, I came back to Marvel, I didn't know what was going on, and they said, you know, here, we want you to write these two books. It's like, okay, you know, fine, I'll write those books. Um, so, that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's that story. Um, this is kind of a general question, but also specifically to kind of writing West Coast Avengers as well. Because um, we talked last time about how, you know, when you came on a book, you definitely wanted to do the research and make sure you got the voices down and that you kind of understood the continuity and that you were more continuity-minded. So when you were doing this research for these characters and plot lines, did you refer to your own comic book collection or did you end up going to the archives to do the research? Like, how did that kind of work out? Are we talking about West Coast Avengers? Um, well, in this case, yes, um, but also broadly with other books you worked on, because obviously with your runs on Avengers, Captain America, uh, etc., like, what was that kind of research process like for you? Um, well, I did, I did always research the stuff. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that they continued to send me... Well, I'm not sure they did, uh, whether I got the comics during the period when I wasn't working for them. Um, one way or another, I ended up with those comics. I mean, they either they dug them out of, you know, the back room or they had sent them to me. But, I, you know, I was able to um, look at the stuff and, and try to figure out what was going on. Um, I didn't have to go to the art. Well, I mean, again, unless they got me stuff from the back room, but I didn't go to any a particular archive to get them myself. Somehow or other, I really don't remember. I had them, so um, I did what I always did, which was just sit down and reread the books and and go, okay, you know, I mean, here's what I like about this. Here's where I think they went off on a unproductive track. Here's a plot line that it needs to be resolved. Here's a character bit that I think would be cool to work with. I mean, all that stuff. And then, um, you know, and, and the West Coast Avengers, again, uh, you know, I understood immediately this was not the Avengers that I had written before. This was mostly a different group of people. It had Hawkeye and Iron Man in it. But everybody else was not only a different character, you know, a new character, but, uh, shall we say, a lesser character. I mean, none of these people, except for the traditional Avengers, were really of the same stature. Um, So I said, okay, well, that's the book I've been handed. What does that make? And Hawkeye was the leader, and Al Milgram was the uh, artist. And Milgram has kind of a... um, you know, he's done a lot of comedy, and, and, and you know, this was a serious book, but at the same time, he's not, um, you know, John Buscema. He doesn't draw s- straight down the line superheroes. He always had a kind of quirk to it. So all, with all that stuff going on, I just thought, okay, the difference here is that these guys are the wackos. I mean, these are the West Coast guys, and they don't get all the respect, and, and you know, and, and just, but they're all trying to, to live up to that, and so, you know, that became fun for me to, you know, to kind of 
work my way through, you know, Tigra and Wonder Man and uh, so forth. Wonder Man was funny because the last thing I did on the Avengers was bring back Wonder Man. Um, and I had envisioned my thing on Wonder Man was that he was, he had been dead, you know, a long time in the Marvel Universe, and they brought him back. It was a voodoo thing. They brought him back. And I wanted to do a character who was, like, extremely dark, somebody who'd been dead and was now back and and having to relate to that sort of thing. Well, that was the last thing I did on the Avengers, and then I left. And then, you know, when Shooter took over the book, he had a different idea for what to do with him. And so, the, you know, the Wonder Man that I inherited several years was this kind of um, uh, wannabe Hollywood star, you know, Schwarzenegger vibe thing. Um, but again, you know, that's the book I was handed. I'm like, you know, it's not my job to sit there and go, this isn't the Wonder Man that I wanted to write, you know. Uh, this is the Wonder Man that I'm writing. So, I, you know, I tried to write that Wonder Man. Um, uh, and, and true with all the rest of them. Um, just playing off who they were. And the, and the one character out of all that group that I really got to like was Mockingbird, uh, you know, which Mark Grinwald, she, he had created her. Um, she was a takeoff on the Black Canary, you know, from, mm -hmm. from D.C. because Hawkeye was a takeoff on Green Arrow. <laughs> but she was a really interesting character, I thought. And, and the longer I wrote that book, the more interested I got in her um, leading up to that thing in, in the, the time travel story where she killed the Phantom Rider because she had been a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. She was, you know, she was trained to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. She was not trained to be an Avenger. And I just, that opened up so many, I mean, you know, I was I was very pleased with where we were all at um, on the Avengers, uh, West Coast Avengers at that point. Uh, following up on that, so we had, I had a few questions uh, that came from listeners about the West Coast Avengers, uh, specifically kind of taking over and now doing this new book. Um, one person had said that at the end of the original West Coast Avengers limited series, it seemed as if the Shroud was going to be a member or at least a recurring character, but it didn't really happen in the ongoing series. Who discarded the idea? Was it you or Roger? It was probably Grunwald. I mean, I, if if the series—it's been a long time since I looked at Rogers, you know, run. But if he ended it with the Shroud as an interesting character, that's probably where he thought he was going to go. If it if it got picked up as a regular series, but when it was handed to me, he was not one of the people in there. So, um, you know, I I never even thought about the Shroud in in that group. Um, before I was done with it, I'd brought in like the Moon Knight, and I'd brought in all these other people, and you know, Shroud might have been coming around again for all I know. But uh, uh, that was probably Mark Grunwald. And how did you like? What was it like approaching Hawkeye from a very different standpoint than he was in the in his kind of original version on Avengers, where now he's a leader of a team, he's in a committed relationship with Mockingbird? Like, how did you? What was it like, kind of writing a very different version of Hawkeye, who still felt like Hawkeye though? Like it was still it felt like a natural progression, but it was still a different you know evolution of the character. Well, I mean. Evolution. I like evolution, and and so I was, you know, I I could hear in the, in the back of my head the original Hawkeye. I mean, I was always sort of operating from the original Hawkeye, but as you say, all those changes had changed him. Um, he, you know, I mean, when you're hanging around with Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor, uh, you see it in the movies too. I mean, 
uh, Hawkeye with the arrows, maybe not on the same level as those guys, and yet he had been, you know, with uh, with them uh, throughout most of his career, and so his chance to finally take over and show what he could do, you know, I was very sympathetic to that that approach to what he might end up doing and then again he was with Mockingbird who I liked a lot and so the interplay between them and you know being um, a more solid citizen a solid citizen but running the wackos I mean you know he wanted the group to be um, to hold up its end and yet you know he had he had these characters he had to break in and and he had to come to terms with it Um, so I, I you know I liked all that Mm-hmm. Um, another listener question was almost at the end of your stint in West Coast Avengers Annual Number 3 you reintroduced Bill Foster as Giant Man again did you have plans to add him as a member of Mockingbird's split team probably yes yeah definitely um, I mean that's the thing at the end the argument between Mockingbird and Hawkeye about whether Avengers killed people had escalated and uh, Hawkeye he was old school in that regard. I mean, my, this is my take, right? I mean, but um, he had the tradition of the Avengers in the back of his head, you know, and the idea, I mean, he just said, you know, Maki, you can't kill people. And to his surprise, she turned around and said, I was trained as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. This guy, the Phantom Rider, spoiler alert, drugged me and raped me. <laughs> So I killed him, you know? I mean, it's like, I'm not putting up with that stuff. And he's like, well, you can't do that. And she's like, yeah, I can. And so I thought that was, you know, I keep I keep coming back to that. Was it interesting? Yeah, it seemed interesting to me. Um, so that's where I was going. I was building to what, you know, the idea that later got, you know, utilized as the Civil War, where the, where basically the Avengers were going to split and the East Coast team was going to jump in there too. I mean, this is where I was going with it. That there would have been the Hawkeye side and there would have been the Mockingbird side and that might have even affected you know, the FF. I mean, the X-Men. I mean, it might have affected other people. This this sort of existential argument about whether you know, what does it mean to be a hero? How can, you know, how can you do this or that and the other thing? Um, and yeah, I was going to I was going to split the group, not east-west, but Hawkeye Mockingbird, and have this Civil War thing, basically, go on. Um, And then, you know, bad times arrived, and and I didn't didn't get to do that, but that was the, uh, yeah, that was the idea. And so I was looking for people. I mean, Bill Foster, um, uh, you know, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to have a big team, if you're going to split this team into two teams and they're both going to be big enough even if you have east coasters joining in i needed enough people you know of my own to kind of make this happen and so um yeah i would that's exactly what i was doing splitting the team and giving each side people Mm -hmm. Um, another another listener asked uh, in an early West Coast Avengers issue, it seemed as if the Thing was joining as a regular member, yet almost as fast he never showed up again. Was there a story behind it? That was a Mark Grunewald idea. That's when I when I took it over. He said, "We're you know the Thing is got, can be in the first year of this book of the West Coast Avengers. We're going to take him out of the FF, um, and you get him for one year. But at the end of the year, you have to write him out." So I, you know, I kind of played with that. It's like I wanted you to think that he was going to join, 
but I knew he wasn't, and he didn't, you know. <laughs> Uh, was your final goal for Mantis to join the West Coast Avengers, or did you only want to close the unresolved plot from the Silver Surfer series? Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, again, that was just a really bad time uh, there. There were there were there were bad things happening all the way around. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I my last issue, uh, I wrote the entire issue, and um, you know they they took it halfway through, throughout my last half, wrote their own last half, changed what she was there for, etc., etc. Um, that, uh, that's, that's never going to get any better. But, um, uh, yeah, I, was, I just was trying to, like, tie off um, stuff with her. Uh, later, much later, in the early 2000s, Tom Brevoort asked me to come and write Avengers Celestial Quest specifically to kind of fix the things that had been done to Mantis that that he and I did not think were what Mantis ought to be doing. Um, and I think this was kind of the beginning of it, of, of other people sort of deciding uh, for whatever reason that they wanted to do other things with Mantis than... than than she was sort of predisposed to do, so it started bending her out of shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, in and around, again, this period of the the return to Marvel, you also were writing Fantastic Four for a while. What was it like being able to play with, with those toys? Well, um, see, back in the day, back in the 70s, um, Roy Thomas had given up writing The Hulk, and I had... No, Archie Goodwin had been writing it. But, yeah, I guess Archie gave it up and, and Roy gave it to me. And then the Hulk got his TV series. And the story that I've heard is that Roy's then wife said, well, you're the editor-in-chief. You should be writing the thing that the TV series is on. So however that happened, Roy came to me and he said, you know, I really want to get the Hulk back, but I'm writing the FF and I'll give you the FF. And I said, no, <laughs> I, you know, I liked, I was having a good time with Herb Trimpey on the Hulk. Uh, I would have liked to have written the FF, but I really didn't want to give up the Hulk. Um, and I didn't, you know, and, and it wasn't as if Roy was a, was a real tyrant that I knew, oh my God, I can't say no to him. So I said no to him. Uh, he, then he took it himself, and then he just took it, you know, cause he was the editor in chief, um, you know, and and again, this was very early in the career, and I'm certainly not at all disposed to go. Well, you can't do that, you know, because he's you know he's my boss, and I'm new, and sure, okay, if if you're going to take it, you're going to take it. As it turned out, he didn't even really keep it very long, but uh, I ended up not getting the the FF, um, and I didn't get didn't have the Hulk either at that point. So we fast forward to this. So I finally get to write the FF, and you know that's cool. I like the FF, um, but I really had thought in reading it that it had become very stale. I thought, you know, the the thing about the Avengers is every time that things get, you know, sort of stale, you just recreate the group and you bring in new characters and you do. A, but you can't really do that with the FF. I mean, over the years, Luke Cage had been a member, Medusa had been a member. I mean, there had been they'd done stuff. Uh, but it never lasted very long, and it always went back to Reed and Sue and Ben and Johnny. And I just thought, geez, you know, I've been reading being, reading Sue and Ben and Johnny for basically 300 issues, um, and I'd really like to shake things up. So um, 
for 200 issues, <laughs> Reed and Sue had been saying, we really need to take better care of our little child Franklin here. So that's the first thing I did was they said, you know, we're going to we're going to go take care of Franklin and you guys, you know, are you Ben and Johnny, you're the two remaining members and you can go recruit two more people and to be the Fantastic Four. But, you know, here's a chance for Ben to be the boss. You know, we were talking about Hawkeye being the boss. I mean, so Ben, you know, he'd never been able to be the be the guy in charge. Um, and so they went and got, you know, Crystal and Ms. Marvel. Um, and built, you know, sort of built their own FF. And, it, you know, it, it opened up all these new things. Because what I really liked was old things, actually. I mean, uh, I really liked that first year of the FF when they were like, well, we got these powers, but this is like, we're the beginning of the Marvel Universe. What are we supposed to do about this? How does this work exactly? Um, and so there were all these stories about, you know, uh, the landlord foreclosing on them, and should we wear costumes? And if we did, what kind of costume? That kind of, you know, I wanted to get back to that vibe. And so the whole idea of Ben and Johnny now being in charge and, you know, going, well, so how does this work exactly? What, you know, we always used to rely on Reed to do all the heavy lifting, and now what are we going to, how is this going to work? So I thought that really made for an interesting strip. Um I will say that at the time, it got a lot of, of resistance. A lot of people didn't want the FF to not be Reed and Sue and Ben and Johnny. Uh, but I found over the years, it's become more and more popular. I mean, it's, it tends to stand out now. Um, uh, so at the time, it was kind of like putting up with people, you know, complaining about it. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the long-term uh, effect. Was there any kind of editorial resistance to kind of moving Reed and Sue out of the book for a while and putting the focus on, you know, on uh, Johnny and Ben, who traditionally had kind of been, you know, if we look at the the idea of the FF being the first family, they were the, they were the kids, and now the kids have kind of taken over. All right, exactly. That was the point. Um, there was no editorial problem in the beginning because that, you know, we're talking about basically the end of the Marvel Age, and this was still this was still the Marvel Age when I started. And I said, here's what I want to do. And they said, okay, you know, it's your book. Do what you want to do. When I ended, I mean, the, the reason I ended was specifically um, uh, they came to me and they said, well, you know, now we're, you know, we're looking for ways to, to, to milk this cow. Um, and, you know, we can't sell licenses to Reed and Sue and Ben and Johnny if Reed and Sue are not in the book. So you have to put Reed and Sue back in the book so we can have lunch boxes. <laughs> and I said, gee, that doesn't really sound like uh, the way Marvel has always been run. And they said, yeah, well, but we're in charge now, and this is how we're running it. And I said, well, I don't know. And they said, well, then you're out of here. And, and so, you know, that's how all that kind of came to an inglorious end. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, somewhere right around in there is basically the end of the Marvel Age as far as I'm concerned. Um, but in the beginning, no, I mean, you know, it's like, that sounds like a cool idea, run with that, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, so uh, is this, I guess, what prompted you to start using the John Harkness pseudonym? Yeah, um, because uh, when they said you're out of here, they said, you can have six months to wrap up all your storylines, you know, we'll give you a, a glide path here, but, you know, we're going to get more pliable people <laughs> uh, writing these books. Um, 
And I, somewhere in there, yeah, there was another thing where they said, you know, Spider-Man sells himself. It doesn't matter who's writing them, writing these books, you know. They went bankrupt like three years later. But um, uh, that was their theory at the time. I mean, it was owned by Revson, the guy who owned Revlon, and he was he was made no bones about it. He just wanted to milk it for all, all the money he could get out of it. Um, so... Um, Sorry, bring me back to where. What was the question? Well, just what led up to using the the pseudonym instead of your your actual name? Oh yeah, so I had six months, and and um, particularly on the FF, I had all these plots that I was going to do. I mean, well, I, that was true for the West Coast Avengers too. But I mean, in the FF, I you know, I, I had sort of set up all these all these like plots that were going to be like three issue arcs. And then they said, well, you have six months. And so that turned into the deal where, like, the real FF is comatose and dreaming about this sort of fake FF, which is kind of running through each one of those plots at a speed of one a month. Um, uh, And the whole thing was just so distasteful, I guess. You know, I didn't really want to have – I mean – they had also said it doesn't matter who's writing the book, so it's like, well, fine, then, you know, there's no need to put my name on it. This isn't what I wanted to do. I was, you know, I was still trying to write. It was like, you know, because I do, you know, I want it to be good. I was trying to write the best thing I could with all these handcuffs on. Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really want... You know, um, I mean, it started out as Steve Englehart, and then it turned into SFX Englehart. SFX is an abbreviation for sound effects. Um, and then when I didn't think even that was uh, derisive enough, then it then I just sort of took my name, took the Englehart off of it, too, and, you know, went to John Harkness. Um, uh, it was just, you know, it was not a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I, I obviously I'm sorry that you went through such a, a negative period um, writing the book. It's interesting that the first two issues of Fantastic Four I ever read as a kid was your last two issues. Um, ironically enough, so I have a kind of a like I like those issues because I was I was a kid when I wrote, read them and I thought they're pretty cool. And it's sad to hear that like it was really not a pleasant experience behind the scenes. It was not a pleasant experience behind the scenes, but I'm glad. You know, I mean, again. I don't know if you asked me if I would recommend those two as the ones to start off with, but I was trying, you know, I was trying the best I could to, to, to do the Fantastic Four under these circumstances, you know. Uh, I, I didn't actually ask this when I was talking, when we were talking about West Coast Avengers, but when you were writing that book, which, which voice did you find was the easiest to write or the most surprising to write in terms of uh, how you gravitated towards it? was easier. I mean, Mockingbird, as I say, I, I had no preconceptions when I got her, but I found her to be interesting the more, you know, the more I worked with her. Um, and the other thing uh, was Hank Pym. Um, uh, you know, I've told this story a lot, but I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, I was never a big fan of Hank Pym. I mean, he just never seemed, you know, in the same way that, I mean, in a similar way to the way Hawkeye never was quite on the same level as, as those other guys. Um, neither was Hank Pym in any of his and things. And he, he usually he usually lost. He usually was sort of dismissed. I mean, that's what drove him crazy and turned him into, into Yellow Jacket in Roy's stories. But um, in general, 
there was never a, a, a period other than maybe, you know, uh, kind of just back in Tales to Astonish when it was, you know, Giant Man and the Wasp. That was kind of a fun run, but I mean, otherwise, he was always changing identities. He was always getting his book canceled, you know, all this kind of stuff. So that led me to the thing of where Hank Pym looks just decides he's going to kill himself, you know, and then and then was uh, saved and 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 you know moved on from there. Um, he was Doctor Pym at that point. That was a Grunwald thing because Grunwald liked Doctor Who. And it was, Grunwald had come up with the idea that maybe he shouldn't even be a costumed hero. He should just, you know, wear a lab coat and a scarf and be like Doctor Who. <laughs> okay, fine, you know, whatever. But, but, um, um, yeah, I thought uh, I thought that was a workable idea, but it, it didn't. I didn't like it as much as Mark did. Mark was interesting because, you know, he re- he was a big fan, too. And, I mean, um, I would imagine that most anybody working at Marvel is a fan one way or another. Uh, but Grunwald was a, was a fan boy. Um, and, you know, editing, you know, that the superhero line, the ones that he had, was a big treat for him. And so he was, you know, he was involved. Um, and I had not worked for him before the 80s. I mean, I just walked in and they said, here are the books you want, and here's the guy who's editing them. I mean, here are the books you're getting, and here are the guy who's editing. Um, uh, but I, you know, I liked his enthusiasm. He and I together came up with the green and red Wonder Man costume, and the two of us thought it was the greatest costume ever, and that was universally despised. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so that'll uh, you know. I don't know what that tells you, but uh, uh, you can't you can't win them all. But yeah, it was fun working with Grunwald, and so um, you know he would he you know uh, he wasn't like overbearing, but every once in a while he'd go, you know, yeah, I really want to see Hank Pym as Doctor Doctor Who, you know. So do do Doctor Pym. It's like okay, you know, you're the boss. I mean. Again, it was basically my book, but in that, but working for Grunwald, it was my book and his book. Most editors would just, you know, here, turn it in, you know, I'll, I'll process it for you. Uh, but Grunwald was interested. He, he came up with ideas, and you know, I'm whether I, whether I thought they were the greatest ideas or not, I I liked him and I liked that enthusiasm. So you know, I tried to do my best by him. Now, I don't know if this would be a touchy subject or not, but uh, I had a few people ask uh, if you could give any insight about uh, working on the Ultraverse characters and also anything about their status at all. Um, well, loved working on the Ultraverse characters. Um, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, the most relevant concept there, I guess, is that Steve Gerber was also doing it, and there were other people. Mike Barr, Jerry Jones, you know, uh, Len Straczynski, people who had not worked for Marvel back in the day. But Gerber and I had, and it was it was sort of a blinding revelation to us. It was We were like the lobsters, you know, the traditional lobster in the boiling pot. <laughs> in the 70s, we'd been given complete creative control. And then as the 80s kind of ran through, the creative control got a little more restricted, 
here or there. I mean, again, at Marvel, it wasn't, it still wasn't very bad. But I mean, you did have Shooter, and he did have rules. Um, I just mentioned Grunwald. He was not, he was not uh, an onerous person, but he had some ideas that, you know, I mean, so it wasn't like completely your own book at that point. Um, Green Lantern pretty much was. I mean, they didn't, they didn't try to tell me what to do over there. Um, but um, uh, in the 90s, when Gerber and I, you know, when, when the Ultraverse guys came around and said, we want to, you know, we just made a zillion dollars being the publishers of the artist-driven image group. Now they've gone off and they've started their own company, but we've still got a boatload of money, and we want to do the same thing, only we want to do it with writers. We want to get writers who can, you know, create this world and, and go from there. Um, and so Gerber and I were sort of handed create complete creative freedom again, and we both kind of like one day, because Malibu took us all to a resort in in Scotts, Scottsdale, Arizona, for four days, where, the, you know, all of us founding fathers and, and the Malibu Brain Trust created everything, you know, I mean, I mean, we might have come in with some ideas or whatever, but I mean, we just, uh, just to touch on that briefly, I mean, we were there for four days and we would have meetings and, and, you know, every, each of us writers would pitch, you know, here's the characters that I want to do. Um, how does that fit into the overall ultraverse? It was called the multiverse at that point, but, um, somebody else had the rights to that as it turned out. Um, uh, and, you know, so you throw that out there, and then all these other creative people would go, well, here's an idea you could throw into that, or, you know, you can't take him to this point because my character's going to do that, and then we talk. I mean, it was just like, it was it was creative nerd heaven, basically. I mean, it was just like we were having such a good time just being told, be as creative as possible and, and go with it. Um, and so, you know, one day... About the third day in, I remember sitting by the pool in Scottsdale. Gerber and I were just hanging out, and we were like, "Wow, we haven't had this in a long time." So this was, you know, this was fun, and really, you know, loved working with the Malibu guys. Um, the problem, of course, was that Marvel did go bankrupt um, from their cash cow approach, and they took everybody down with them. And Malibu had so much money that they were the last ones to run out of money, but. They did, and meanwhile, they had invented, or at least utilized, the Photoshop coloring approach. Mm -hmm. And Marvel, DC and Marvel both were bidding for the rights to the Malibu brain trust, whatever, characters. Um, and I guess Marvel outbid DC, but what Marvel wanted was all those guys who could do Photoshop coloring. They didn't particularly care about the characters. They wanted the um, the process. Um, and so, and, and, I mean, it was weird because once Marvel bought it, then they sort of took a few random Marvel characters and put them into the Malibu universe. Um, and there were stories that, you know, the Marvel editors didn't like this. They didn't want their characters being, you know, taken away from them and put into this this lesser universe as they as they saw it. Um, so, you know, uh, you didn't get all, you know, you didn't have a great range of characters, but it was kind of this weird marriage between the two. But, you know, once again, I'm, I'm like 
as long as I'm doing it, I'm trying to do, you know, what I can do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually everything went under. And so to get back to your other part of your question, um, they bought they bought the rights. They stuck the characters in a drawer. They started doing Photoshop coloring, and that was the end of it. And then in 2000, 2002, somewhere in there, Revort, and we were at San Diego, and, and he came and he said, Marvel's going to redo, going to introduce all the Malibu characters into the Marvel Universe, and we'd like you to write it. It's like, okay, that would be cool. Um, and uh, we talked, I'm sure, last time about when I took over the Justice League, and they said, revamp all the characters. And I, and I eventually said, well, I can tell the stories and I can revamp all the characters, but i got to have a double-sized book for it, um, 34 pages a month. And they said, okay. Um, so that's one of the things that I said about the uh, Malibu thing. I said, if I'm going to, I mean, I don't have to revamp them necessarily, but I have to introduce them and 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 play with them. Um, so I need a double-sized book. And uh, I got the memorable response that, um, there's nobody that fans want to see who could draw 34 pages a month, and there's nobody who could draw 34 pages a month that the fans want to see. <laughs> uh, so um, that was a bone of contention. But anyway, you know, I worked out this whole thing. I mean, I, 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 you know, I thought, you know, fool, these guys had been stars in the Malibu universe, in the world they lived in, they were they were media figures. They you know they had lives, they had fathers, they had girlfriends, they had this whole thing, and now they were plunged into the Malibu or the Marvel universe. And I thought, okay, they don't know who Spider Man is. They don't know that they're supposed to be impressed by Iron Man, and vice versa. I mean, everybody's going, "Who the hell are you?" Well, I'm Night Man. Well, we don't know anything about you. We don't care. <laughs> um, and so the and so the the entry of these guys who had a whole history and a and a, and a uh, pride and and all this being tossed in the Marvel universe, I thought, now that would be interesting, you know, for everybody concerned. Prime, you know, who was basically a little kid when he didn't turn into Prime, he was going to go to Professor X's school for gifted children, you know? I mean, I thought Nightman and Daredevil would become pals. I mean, it's, you know, there would be all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, boom, nope, we're not doing it. Sorry. Um, I had it all worked out. And, and then they said no. Um, and then since then, um, on three different occasions, I know of three occasions I know of, and there might even be more, um, there have been attempts to, like, resurrect them because Marvel does own them. They're not making Marvel any money. Um, They're just sitting there. But the problem is, as I understand it, um, when we worked out our contracts with Malibu, um, we asked, can we own these characters? And they said, no. We're going to own the characters, but that's okay. You can trust us to use them well, mm. which is true as long as Malibu existed. But people didn't think, what if you end up having to sell this to somebody? So we didn't own the characters, but we did have a contract that said that when, you know, when Nightman is published, I get 5% of the of the net, probably. I don't remember, probably. Um, and if Nightman guest stars in somebody else's book, you get 1%. Um, and I am... Uh, over the years, people have said, it's not that, it's something else. It's like, blah, blah. No, I'm totally convinced that it's entirely that, that 
you know, if they published Nightman, they'd have to give me a cut of it. And not only that, but as soon as that happened, the guy writing X-Men would show up and go, well, I want that same deal, you know, <laughs> which I totally understand. And so I'm convinced that that's why they, you know, they've, they were shut down. Um, the one hope that I have now is that now that Disney owns them, that somebody at Disney one day might go, we own these guys. Why are they sitting in a drawer? We're not making any money. And Disney wouldn't be so worried about, you know, the percentages to the creators because Disney's got all the money in the world. Um, so they might come back. But I, but I, you know, the last time I heard about it, again, everything seems to happen in San Diego, or at least for me, maybe because I don't live in New York. Never haven't lived in New York. But, you know, somewhere around 2005, six, somewhere in there, an assistant editor, somebody's assistant editor at Marvel, came up to me in San Diego and he said, I really am going to make it my my goal to get those characters back. And I said, yeah, go for it, you know. And two weeks later, he emailed me and he said, I was told that it's worth my job to be pressing this issue. So so I'm out of it. So I don't really know, uh, you know. Yeah, wow. You know, where, where all that is. But um, Marvel turned vehemently against using them after they, you know, and I, I'm assuming, again, that if there had been something in the original contract, which is sort of the alternate story to this, they would have discovered it before they asked me to bring them all into the Marvel Universe. It, clearly, it's something that they discovered when they were getting ready to actually pull the trigger on this thing. And the only thing that makes any sense to me is that it's the contracts that, that all of us, you know, have for those characters. Um but loved the Malibu characters. Um, and, you know, I got a TV series out of it, so, you know, I mean, even better. But, um, um, you know, there was there was an option on Prime as a movie throughout the whole Malibu years. Nobody ever pulled the trigger on that, possibly because the books went away. But uh, um, there were there was there was a lot of potential um, mm -hmm. for those guys. And I, you know, so I'm really I hope that they come back someday. Um and not, you know, not because I get 5% of Nightman or The Strangers, but because, you know, I just, I think that, you know, Nightman does not have an analog in the in the Marvel Universe. Um, you know, he plays in the same ballpark with Moon Knight and Daredevil, whatever, but, you know, Nightman is a different breed of cat there, and there's, uh, you know, several strangers who, are, who don't have any counter, I mean, and, you know, there's plenty of, Malibu characters in general who don't have counterparts. It's not like they're being, um, you know, that that, that that vibe is being filled by somebody else. So, um, hmm. uh, you know, I, I can't, I used to say it sounds to be like it will never happen. Now I say maybe, you know, <laughs> but that's the story. Would would it be weird to have the characters come back, but you're not writing them? Like, would it be weird to see that happen, considering that you know you were their creator and this was your book, like this was your thing? It's hard to say. I would, you know, if they did want to bring them back, I would certainly make the pitch for me and the other guys to write them. Um, whether they would, I'll go for that. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, I do understand comics as a thing. I mean, nobody but me has ever written Nightman. Nobody but me has ever written The Strangers except, you know, in guest starring and other Malibu books. But, I mean, 
the nature of comics is that uh, you know uh, if if they did do them today, it might well be new people who are doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that you know that wouldn't. In that case, I'd be just all I'd be getting out of it is the money, you know, which is better than getting nothing, you know. Uh, but um, no, I, I, I'm I was totally invested in those characters. I'd sure like to take another run at them. And, I, and the, the last thing, actually, just to wrap that up, for a while there, right at the end of the Malibu thing, after Black September, there was supposed to be a change for everybody, and. and Nightman ended up getting more magical powers. You know, it's just that was a, an editorial thing. That's what that's what's going to happen. Um, but there had been this kind of split. Black September had sort of split everything up, and I thought. I mean, there was there basically there was a Nightman in the Malibu universe, and there could have been a Nightman in the Marvel universe. And I, what I was really, you know, another idea that I had, which didn't go anywhere, was I I said, let's, you know, let's write both of the, let me write both of those books. It's, it's the whole Vision Wonder Man thing, right? I mean, you take Simon Williams' memories and you stick them in a different guy, and then he has a different experience, and so Vision and Wonder Man are not the same person, even though they both started as the same person. That's what I thought would be cool about, you know, Nightman. If there's a Nightman in the Malibu universe pursuing a life and a Nightman in the Marvel universe, and they, and they're two, you know, they become two different guys and they're in different universes, but they're both called Nightman. I thought that would be like really fun, but that didn't happen either. So, uh, before we uh, kind of let you run away, um, I had some uh, some listener questions, and uh, do you mind if we kind of do a, a quick kind of lightning round? Sure. All right. So we're going to go way back for this. Uh, working on Captain Marvel. Uh, had you been following the magazine before Starlin asked you on board? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was. I mean, Starlin was doing a, an incredible job. I, there's no reason I wouldn't be following it. But I was probably following everything. So I mean, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I was a big fan of what he was doing. How did you? How did he ask you to? Or why did he ask you to take over on the dialogue? Well, he didn't feel that he was a good enough writer. He, you know, he he had started out working with with writers, and then he had decided that he had more ideas and understood them better. And you know, I mean, he came in from Detroit with Thanos and and uh, you know half of those guys that later you know became who they became. So you know, he understood them better than anybody else, and and so he eventually sort of uh, got the the actual writers off the book so that he could write them. And it was still a good book. I mean, I, I didn't have a problem with what he was doing, but he thought that, you know, he could be better, but he couldn't do it while he was having to grind away at it. So he wanted to take the time off and just let somebody else write it, and he wanted me to write it. Um, so, you know, he said, would you do that? And I'm like, sure, you know. How did you feel about, um, and this is a listener question, so I, the emphasis is on the uh, the person who wrote the question, but uh, how did you feel about being a quote-unquote mirror dialoguer? Oh, I, you know, that's, uh, I mean, not a problem. I mean, I wouldn't want to do that for my entire comic book output, but I mean, Jim was a friend. And, and he, you know, he had thought enough of what I was doing to ask me to, you know, to write the book so that he could kind of, like, watch what I did. So it's like, yeah, I'm good. And then, you know, uh, 
then he dropped off, and then I became, you know, the writer. Uh, but uh, in in the couple issues that we did the overlap on, I mean, I'm, I'm, who's who's going to argue with Jim Starlin's sense of plotting? You know, did you have any input in the plotting when he was still working on the book, or would he do the full plot and then you just kind of came in with the dialogue? Or how was the collaboration? No, that's pretty much the way it was. It was his book, you know. I mean, um, I was just trying to. Uh, I, I don't want to say, you know, I mean, it was basically to show him how to write good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, he wrote fine, but but he thought that a professional, you know, he, he thought he, he wanted to see it. But, I mean, it was his book, so, you know, he, he figured out what he wanted to do, and then he, you know, gave me the stuff and said, here's here's what's happening, and so I, I was a mere dialoguer, which was fine. Uh, when when he did depart the book, um, I, the uh, the list, the listener said that um, he, he kind of left the the magazine with uh, Cap in kind of a, a, t- a tough spot uh, to kind of get out of from a writing standpoint. How did you feel about the challenge of kind of having to take over in a bit of a you know painted into a corner a little bit? Well, that's just you know fun stuff for comic book people. I mean. Um, I, I once did a Dracula Doctor Strange crossover with Marv Wolfman, and we both agreed going in that at the end of the Dracula book, Dracula would kill Doctor Strange, and then in Doctor Strange's book, he would come back to life and he would kill Dracula, and then next month Marv would have to resurrect Dracula. I mean, that's just that's just stuff. So, um, but it's interesting that that um, that kind of uh, I would I. I can't say, but it wasn't my impression that Jim had, you know, the death of Captain Marvel in his brain when he had Captain Marvel get that gas and fall over. Um, but that then later turned out to be the springboard for all that stuff. Um, but I think at the time he was just kind of like, I'm going to leave the character pretty much dead. And here you go, Steve, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, okay, you know, fine. That's, that, that is a challenge. Let's see what we can do with that. Switching gears to to Batman for a moment. Um, during your Batman run, uh, what what kind of prompted you to include the character of Hugo Strange? Oh, I wanted to go back and get the the pulp vibe from the thirties. Um, uh, you know, I thought Batman had really lost that dark Dark Knight uh, approach back before Dark Knight meant something else. Um, so I went back and, and I did go to the archives for that. I mean, they, I didn't. There'd been a, a random stories from that era reprinted, and I had them all. But I, you know, I said I got to go read the original run of Detective Comics, and DC does have a very nice library with everything all bound and sitting in bookshelves and so forth. So some intern xeroxed like the first year of the Batman stories, and I read them, and amongst them was Hugo Strange, um, also was Dalla the Vampire, um, the last last series that um, Marshall and I were going to do before Marshall died was going to bring back Dalla the Vampire. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, so I liked, I liked that stuff, but I mean, I, I probably went through this last time, but I mean, I was trying to, trying to recapture the original pulp feel, I was trying to turn Batman into an adult person with a love life and a sex life and, and all that to, to make him more acceptable to the general populace um, and and also just kind of like get all everything I 
had loved about the Batman into, into the few issues that I had at the time. Um, but yeah, Hugo Strange, just, mm-hmm. he was a cool looking, he looked cool, and, you know, he was a guy who created monsters, uh, maybe not as scary as the vampire herself, but uh, um, he looked great with those glasses and all that stuff. For sure. Um, another listener question. As far as the comics code and, ad- and adult content was concerned, you portrayed uh, Silver as very sexy and sexually aware. Did this cause any problems? No. Um, uh, when I started in comics in like 1971 or two, somewhere in there, one of the early things that I had to do as an assistant editor at Marvel, um, they, Roy and Barry Windsor Smith, had done. Uh, a story called The Frost Giant's Daughter in the black and white Conan book. And she was she was as naked as she could get in the black and white book. And then they wanted to reprint it in color, and so they sent it to the Comics Code Authority. And I, one day I get this delivery from the Comics Code Authority, and it, and it was this whole thing about, in this panel you can show this much of the breast, but not anymore. And in this panel you have to cover this part. I was just, like, astounded. But that was the way the comic code authority was still operating in like 1971 or 72 but by 1976 there had been a big pretty big change i mean they had really been defanged to a great extent nobody was worried about them particularly um and i mean you know i again comics were supposed to be for everybody um so i was trying to speak to the adult audience but not, you know, freak out the children in the process. Um, so, you know, she's she is sexually aware. She's, you know, she she's as sexy as as we could get in the comics in those days. Um, um, but that was, you know, that was my secret weapon for turning Batman into an adult. By, you know, giving. I mean, uh, nobody had ever considered giving a superhero a sex life before that point because the comics code wouldn't let you go there. But the comics code was was weak enough at that point, and I, and I knew what I wanted to do and what I thought needed to be done, um, so I was able to thread that needle. Hmm. Um, another listener question here: uh, You and Marshall did a great job of turning Deadshot into a credible threat for Batman. Did you think he would become a classic Bat baddie and go on to a longer career in comics? No, um, I had. Um, uh, Again, I probably covered this in the last one to some extent, but I mean, when I left Marvel at that in the seventies, I said, "Screw it, I'm leaving comics altogether." And then Jeanette Kahn called up and asked me to come over to DC, and I said, "Okay, I'll do that under you know various conditions." But one thing is, I'm only going to be here for a year, so from the start, I only had you know uh, as many issues as there were in a year. And in those days, for Detective Comics, that was seven. Um, it was bi-monthly, but they threw in an extra book in the summer. Um, but the early issues sold so well that they said, we need, an eighth, we need another issue. We need an eighth issue. And I had very carefully plotted. I mean, you can see how, how tightly put together that Batman run was. And I, you know, my first reaction was, how am I supposed to stick another issue into this thing but my second thing was well then I get to spend more time with like Bruce and Silver sitting in a restaurant talking to each other and so forth um, 
well, we needed a villain. And I had done Hugo Strange, and I had done the, or, you know, or War was planning to do Joker, Penguin, you know. It's like, well, we could go get the Scarecrow. We could do this. We could do that. And it was Julie um, who said, um, Julie Schwartz, the editor, who said, let's do Deadshot. And I had no idea who Deadshot was, and Julie showed me that he was a guy who wore a tuxedo and six guns. And I'm like, what the hell? I don't know why Julie thought of him. I, I You know, he probably told me at the time, but I don't remember. Um, but Marshall, you know, Marshall reimagined his costume, and we, you know, we upped his powers. And um, But it's like the Shroud. I mean, the Shroud, for me, was a throwaway character. I just, you know, I'm... I was writing Supervillain Team Up. I needed somebody else, you know, who was seemed bad but maybe wasn't bad. Um, so I created the Shroud, and 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 now the Shroud's a thing. Or the Nomad, you know, Nomad was just whenever Steve Rogers doesn't want to be Captain America, he can be the Nomad. Now we're on our fourth Nomad. I mean, that's you know <laughs> the nature of comics. Uh, this is another question. It was about your interest in comics history and previous stories. And uh, the listener says, in most of your runs, you built on older stories, expanded ideas, and connected previously unconnected things. And he'd like to know what his reasons were for doing that. Just what I liked doing. I mean, the reason I was a Marvel Comics writer was because I liked the continuity of the, of the thing that these characters, <clears throat> you know, they were supposed to be living in New York City. They were supposed to have... A history that, you know, I mean, if things happened, those things were important and you could refer back to them and you had footnotes and so forth. Um, I liked the giant web that Stan and all the artists um, wove. Um, and when I got there, it was early 70s, so it was really, it was 10 years into the Marvel run. And so, you know, when I wrote Thor, that was Thor. I mean, it wasn't he wasn't rebooted. He wasn't, you know, uh, you know. I mean, it was like it was the same guy that, uh, with his history going back ten years. True for all those people. So I liked that stuff, and I thrived in that environment. Um, and so, because everything was connected, it was sort of obvious to me to go back. You know, as we said, when I took over a book to go back and read the stuff and see what connections were sitting there that, that I could make use of, obviously I couldn't just, you know, sit there and, and tie up loose ends from, you know, from previous issues. I had to do something to move everything forward, and I hope I did that. But uh, I did, you know, I did like the fact that um, that things were connected and, and you could understand why somebody did something because of something that he'd done you know, five years earlier, um, I totally get it that after 50 years, it's impossible to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The whole continuity bit had to had to go. And Stan, of course, um, somewhere in that period was quoted famously as saying, we don't want change, we want the illusion of change. <laughs> um, um, you know, I mean, Stan came to understand that you can't just keep going forward all the time. Peter Parker would be a grandfather now, you know? I mean, so what are you going to do? But uh, in that era, um, that's, what it, that's what intrigued me, and that's what I wanted to work with when I was there. Um, when, who, who was involved first with Master of Kung Fu? Was it you or Jim? It was simultaneous. Um, uh, there was a party. I, I lived up in um, Stamford, Connecticut, 
and uh, most everybody else lived in New York. I, I never was a New York kind of guy. I just I'm, I'm I want more grass and trees than New York could provide. So I moved. You know, and there's a few Dick Giordano, uh, Gil Kane. Various people lived up in Connecticut, but there weren't many of us. But anyway, I did. And so, um, you know, when I was in New York, I'd hang out with my buddies and we'd, you know, we'd do whatever we did. But every once in a while, I'd throw a party up at my place and people would all come up for the weekend and, and you know. And so one Saturday night, um, We'd been partying all day long, and we were going to go out to dinner, and there was an artist named Steve Harper who go on to have a large career, but, you know, he was he was one of the gang at the time, and, and he said, well, I'm going to stay here. I want to watch a TV show, and we said, why? What, you know, what could it be? And he said, well, they, there was this one episode like a month ago, this thing called Kung Fu, and I really like it, and I want to see the second episode tonight. This was before there were any... DVRs and, and on-demands and stuff. I mean, you either watched or you didn't. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, God, okay, if, if, it's, if it's as cool as you say it is, we'll sit here and watch it too. And and so we did. And Starlin, you know, was one of the people. And Starlin and I just both immediately fell in love with that series. I mean, just really, you know, we were, we were right there. Thank you, Steve, for turning us on to it. Um, and then, you know, we talked about it. And, and what they did in the original thing, they, they had three episodes that they showed one month apart. Um, and so a month later, when the third episode came on, I was in New York, and Starlin didn't have a TV, or I don't remember, but we ended up going to Roy's house. We went to Roy's apartment and said, Roy, we, we, you know, can we come and watch TV at your house? It's like, okay. Um, <laughs> So Starlin and I were sitting there watching this thing, and I remember Roy walked through at one point, and he said, "This is pretentious bullshit." <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't. It didn't work for him at all, but we loved it, and so you know, we're you know, we started talking about it. You know, we want to you know, we want to get that vibe and run with that vibe, and and um, so you know. Uh, Right after that, Starlin and I went in and said, "We got this idea. We want to do this thing, you know." Um, and and you know, it went on. And Fu Manchu got added, and then the Kung Fu exploded. And then I didn't have the time to keep up with it, and Starlin didn't have time to keep up with it, and you know. And then Doug Manchin and Paul Glacey took over and turned it into something fabulous that was very different from what we had started out. You know what our vision was, but. Um, uh, that was the. I mean, it was Starlin and me just sitting side by side on the couch, looking at this thing, going, "We're both vibing on this. Let's see what we can do about it." Wow, um, it it had a very pulpy feeling to it during your your, your run on it. Was that in, an intentional kind of feel? Well, because of Fu Manchu. I mean, Roy. Uh, you know, we took it to Roy. He was the editor, and we said that that series that you thought was pretentious, we want to we want to do something like that. And Kung Fu was not not on anybody's radar at that point. I mean, again, ABC was running three episodes one month apart. Uh, I mean, they it was it was they were just testing the waters and, and see what would happen. So when Roy agreed that we could do this book, he said, "Yeah, but it's only it's only this Kung Fu." bullshit you know i mean like let's put fu manchu in there i mean you know it was uh, roy comes from the pulp era you know 
and so his idea of of a villain for a for a story about a Chinese guy was the Chinese villain, you know, um, Fu Manchu. The problem, as it turned out, over time was that Marvel had to lease the rights, and then later when they didn't have the lease to the rights, they couldn't republish any of this stuff. Um, they had to lease the rights again when they recently republished everything. Um, but at the time, uh, neither Jim or I, I mean, I, I liked Fu Manchu. You know, I like Pulp. I'm, I'm good with Fu Manchu. But I didn't, it wasn't my part of my vision for Shang-Chi, but that was the price of admission, right? And then, well, the other price was to make him half white. Um, the famous story is that Bruce Lee was in the running to be the TV guy, and then they said, no, no, we got to have a white guy. So that's how David Carradine got the job. And then, so we said, we want to do a real Chinese heroine. And they said, nope, got to be half white at least, because that's publishing good wisdom, you know, how do you sell books? That's, you got to do that kind of thing. Uh, Might have been true, you know, could have been true in those days, I don't know, but that was the deal. So we worked with what we were allowed to do. Um, then, as I say, by the time we even got to the third issue, <clears throat> Kung Fu was had suddenly become ten times as big as it was. And by the time we got to the, by, well, that's when Jim dump, jumped off. By the time we got to the fifth issue, it was like a hundred times bigger. And everybody was going Kung Fu crazy. <laughs> Which is why, you know, Roy then invented Iron Fist as, you know, as his contribution to the to the Kung Fu genre and why there was suddenly two Master of Kung Fu books, a black and white and a regular book, and then there were specials and there were annuals, and it was just like, holy Christ, there's, you know, they couldn't publish those books fast enough at that point, but that was antithetical to what Jim and I had, had wanted to do, so, you know, we both left it uh, around then. And as I say, probably a good thing because what Doug did with it and his various artists, I mean, that was a, that was a fabulous run that he ended up doing. What What is it like to, I mean, so again, this is one of those characters where you kind of, you created Shang-Chi from kind of whole cloth. How, what is it like to kind of have one of your, you know, quote-unquote fictional children, you know, grow and develop under other writers and artists over the years? Well, same as my answer previously. I mean, again, um, when I dropped off of Master of Kung Fu, I wasn't. I, it wasn't a bad thing. I mean, you know, the thing had become so fantastically successful that it had outgrown what I wanted to do with it. But um, you know, at first, as I say, you know that somebody else is going to take it over, and at first you go, "Well, gee, you know, I, I wish I were still doing. I would, you know, I, I can't under these circumstances, but I wish the circumstances were such that I could." Um, you know, but that doesn't last very long. And then, you know, and then, I mean, there was kind of a period there where I think Doug and 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 um, Paul were not exactly sure where they wanted to go. And then one day they decided, and, and you know, and, and I was looking at that stuff recently, and, and um, you know, it just says starting a thing, you know, and then they and they turned it into James Bond and, and international intrigue and all that kind of thing. Um, and so at that point, I'm going, wow, this is really good. <laughs> and, and, you know, you don't think, I mean, uh, well, I mean, there's they, part of me way in the back of my head says this is my character. But most of me in the front of my head is going, this is really good. I, you know, I mean, 
not that it can't be my character and be good, but it's like, okay, well, these guys are doing it proud, doing it up, so I'm enjoying reading this book, even even under the circumstances. So, when you were working on it with Jim, who kind of who came up with the idea for how Shang's inner monologue kind of worked? Well, that was me. I mean, that was the writing. Um, um, you know, I you know, I, uh, Jim. You know, we tossed ideas back and forth. I couldn't tell you at this point who did what, but I mean, certainly the inner monologue was was the writer's contribution. Um, um, I well, the last thing I did at Marvel in the seventies was I wrote an issue of The Prisoner with Gil Kane, um, which is Titan Books over in England is going to publish that with the Kirby version and everything else prisoner-oriented um, in the, in a couple of months, sometime soon. Um, so I had occasion to review the, the script that I wrote for The Prisoner, and it was the same kind of deal that both the Kung Fu TV hero and the Prisoner TV hero didn't have interior monologues, but for comics, they both needed them. I mean, you know, you can't just sort of walk around and, and uh, I mean, if you're watching somebody do something in real life, you understand what they're doing. If you're reading a comic, you might not, there might not be enough panels to kind of make it clear as to exactly what's going on. So I gave number six an interior monologue, uh, and I gave um, Shang-Chi an interior monologue where they can, uh, you know, keep us informed of what it is that they're thinking um, the form of it again, you know, the way he, the way Shang Chi speaks, um, that you know, that was just that was me. Mm-hmm. When you were writing Doctor Strange in Marvel Premiere, was it important to you at all to have Doctor Strange kind of graduate back into his own book where he was the headliner and it wasn't just another, you know, he wasn't jockeying for space? No, I was I was thrilled to be writing the Defenders. Um, uh, you know, I said looking back on stuff, that when I actually wrote Doctor Strange in his own book, I realized that he'd been more of a superhero who did magic rather than a magician in The Defenders. Um, The stories, if they went in a magical direction, didn't go very deeply in a magical direction. But that was part, you know, that was the nature of The Defenders with the Hulk and, and Submariner and often the Silver Surfer and then the Valkyrie later. Um... So, no. I mean, I wrote the Defenders very happily as the Defenders, and when I left them, I left them. And then when I got offered Doctor Strange in his own book, it wasn't like, oh, good, I get to write the real one now. It was just like, okay, you know, cool. I I do get to write the real one, but it wasn't like, it had no connection really to to the previous book. What was it about Clea that really kind of spoke to you and had you add so much to her history and her backstory and really developing her? Because before you kind of came on board and really developed her, she wasn't as deep a character. Yeah, well, um, I, I like to I like to drill down into my characters. Um, but, I mean, there were only three regular characters. There was... Stephen Strange, there was Clea, and there was Wong, um, and and so uh, you know, 
it's, it goes back to why does John Stewart have to leave if Hal Jordan comes back? Why can't they both be there? I mean, why does the Falcon have to? Why should the Falcon play second fiddle if he's Captain America's partner? I mean, that that kind of thing. You know, it's like she was a mystical princess. Why? You know, why was she as shallow as she had been? Um, let's find out more about her. It gives me, you know, it gives me more relationship stuff between her and Doctor Strange. It gives me more, you know, places to go because she's leading us there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure anybody can say that I ever sort of took over a character and didn't try to. <laughs> to flesh them out somehow. Yeah. Um, I got two two final questions, and then uh, and then I will thank you for your time. But um, did you ever? This is a listener question. Did you ever start to write something, but have an editor say, "No, you can't do that because of what happened to this character in this previous issue"? Um, no, not like that. Certainly not. I mean, in the old, in the original days, in the in the Creative Freedom days of Gerber and me in the seventies. I mean, if you wanted to do something and it impacted anybody else's book, you just went to them and said, you know, here's what I want to do. How does this work? And, and you guys would work it out amongst yourselves as to how everybody would be go away happy. Um, uh, when I came back to Marvel in like 2000, 2002, whatever it was, um, to do that stuff for Brevoort, um, the first thing he gave me was a Hellcat series with Norm Brayfogel and... Um, uh, and, and I remembered Patsy Walker. I had brought Patsy Walker into the Marvel Universe as a superheroine, as the Hellcat, you know. And they said, oh, yeah, but since you left, uh, she married the son of Satan and committed suicide. <laughs> and like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Sure. That's... Not sure what to do about that. That's my wife calling on my other phone. We'll just have to wait till this stops ringing, and then I'll pick it up again. Okay. Okay. Um, pick it up from where were we? What were we doing? Uh, oh, what's the question? Uh, Patsy Walker. Um, oh yeah, Patsy Walker. Um, so I'm like, well. Because when it was creative freedom, when we were in charge, when the writers were in charge, again, we'd read all the books, we knew the characters, um, and I said to Brevoort, I said, you know, it's like uh, you can, you got to give me those books, right? So I know what the heck went on. But I said, I'm really sorry that I don't, you know, I mean, I feel bad that I don't know all this stuff. And he said, nobody knows that stuff anymore except the editors. It's the editor's job now to keep track of all this stuff. Like, oh, okay, welcome, welcome to the new Marvel. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was different. Um, but, well, anyway, mm -hmm. that's all I got to say. La last question then. Are you surprised that the plots, stories, and characters that you wrote about are still being talked about and collected today? Yes. Um, I mean, when I did them, I didn't, I had zero thought about people will be caring about this 50 years from now. I mean, you know, you would never think that. But, I, you know, I tried to write the best stuff I could write, and it was in a really good era for writing things. I mean, a lot of people 
for whatever, you know, reason, like the way 70s comics were put together, 80s comics were put together. Um, and if I may say, they like the way I put stuff together, and things are different now. They don't, they're, not, they're not done that way now. So um, uh, I knew... I was very pleased with what I was writing. I mean, as, as a fanboy who got to be a professional, I had a pretty good sense of what I liked in comics, and I thought when I was doing my writing that I was satisfying that sense, that I was doing stuff that I would like and that other people would like. And it seemed like they did. I mean, sales were good, people were happy, they, you know, go to cons, everything was there. So, I mean, I kind of knew that these were good comics, but, I mean, I don't think anybody, I doubt even Stan, uh, was thinking, you know, I mean, you might you might think they might collect them for the next five years or something or, you know, whatever, but, the, but what it's turned into, the movies, the collections, the fact, you know, I mean, <laughs> um... It's just it's it's all it's all surprising to me and you know and it's it's obviously gratifying um, um, having done stuff that's that's like still you know still relevant today uh, but no no idea whatsoever. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Steve, for uh, spending so much time with us both today and uh, for our first interview. So I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, it's been great chatting with you. Same here. It was fun. Maybe we'll do a third one. Hey, uh, don't tempt me. I'll, I'll get you back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Sure. Bye.